Thank, thank you very much, Claire. Beautifully read. Despite the gremlins, Norman, did you bring the little green people with you this morning? But no, we're delighted for you, actually, especially as apparently we now have to pay a tax to visit the Blarney Stone. Um, but we, we, Rosemary and I really enjoyed the rugby yesterday, I must say. It was, it was a great... But we have a problem with our television, Norman. I'm, I think we've mentioned it to you, that at, at the end, the team that were holding up the cup were all dressed in white. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what, what, was, what was going on there. So let's just pray together as we look at God's word. Heavenly Father, would you challenge us, would you challenge us anew to speak your truth with a holy boldness and to hunger afresh for justice in your kingdom, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. At face value, this parable seems to be clear enough. The version that Claire read, as you heard, was from the New King James and its classic fire and brimstone Matthew. Things are so black and white for Matthew. In his world, you're either a sheep or a goat, wheat or a tear, a wise maiden or a foolish one. If you pretend to be one when you're really the other, woe betide you, you hypocrite with a plank in your eye you wolf in sheep's clothing. Three guesses where you're heading when the kingdom comes. And the one thing that Matthew really gets excited about is hell, which he tells us is a municipal rubbish dump outside Jerusalem. And that's where a lot of sorry hypocrites are going to end up wailing and gnashing their teeth. Luke mentions the rubbish dump once, so maybe there's something in it. But Matthew can't get enough of it. Over and over again he puts hell into Jesus' words, he fills the fiery furnace with all kinds of miscreants, evildoers, unfaithful stewards, and a wicked, wicked servant who's so afraid of his master that he doesn't have the nerve to invest a single talent in the financial markets. You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I do not sow, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Then he has the wicked servant cast out into the outer darkness. So I wonder which of the three servants do you identify with? How many of you go for servant number one? Servant number one? Yes, there's a few people over there. We're really good. He got 100% return on his... Actually, so did servant number two. He got 100% return on his, on his capital too. And the great thing is that both of them got to share in their master's happiness. As for this miserable third servant, what can you say? Not just wicked and lazy, but worthless, unworthy of any response from the master, apart from the effect that it took to cast him into the outer darkness to weep and gnash his teeth. Here's a selection of distinguished commentaries over the years, which aren't going to appear on the screen, so I'll read them to you. 
Oh, they're there. Hooray. Hooray. This is the story of a man whom over caution and cowardice led to a breach of trust. The third servant's refusal to risk led to repressed guilt, resulting in the loss of opportunity for meaningful existence. I don't know what it means, but it sounds very good. Out of fear of failure, he refused even, even to try and succeed. The Oxford Bible commentary occupies a big place on my bookshelf. It's very thick. It says, the punishment of the evil slave represents those in the church who, through their sins of omission, condemn themselves to eschological darkness. The parable of the talents urged Jesus' listeners to use their resources aggressively. So you see, the meaning of this parable has been set in theological cement for a very, very long time. And really, what else can we say about this miserable third servant? He did not harvest where his master had sown, and he did not reap where his master had not planted seed. How... How we hear a parable, how we hear a parable has a lot to do with our vision of God's kingdom. How we hear a parable has a lot to do with our vision of God's kingdom. In Jesus' time, a gold talent weighed roughly about the same weight as a person. It represented 20 years of a servant's wages. So the only people who could possibly own eight bags of talents, of gold talents, was somebody like this master. He was the elite. And it was their households, it was the master's households and their estates that formed the dominic, dominant economic units of that time. How did those masters acquire their wealth? Well, much as we might expect, they inherited their estates and their lands, and they engaged in trade. But they had another string to their bow as well. They were also the bankers of their day, lending money to people, especially to subsistence farmers and agricultural workers who often struggled to make the repayments. Wealthy householders like this master were in effect the payday lenders of their age. If you were strapped for cash, especially after a family illness or a prolonged drought, you shopped around and tried to get the best interest rate you could. And you'd put up your farm and your livestock, even your farming tools as collateral. Then you get on with laboring day and night, tilling the soil to bring in the harvest. And by the time you'd got round to realizing that you were paying 100% APR, it was too late. Your payday lender would foreclose on your land, cash in the assets quicker than you could say Leviticus, and your home was suddenly no longer yours. But that didn't always mean eviction. You and your family could stay on if you were willing to work for your payday lender, who was now your new master. 
True, you'd see your family fields replanted with olive trees and vines, cash crops that could be exported to lucrative export markets that, of course, the master had access to. And since going abroad, going to these export markets was what most first-century financiers had to do, they would employ domestic overseers, slaves and servants, to manage their estates while they were gone, keep the books for them, collect the rent dues. And it was the custom for these servants to make a little bit of extra on the side, share in their master's happiness. Just how much extra would depend on their standing in the household. The higher the status, the greater the backhanders. And they did this with the full knowledge of their master. The more the merrier, as far as, far as he was concerned, because it gave the overseers, the servants, a real cash incentive to rake it in for him while they took a little bit on top. So whatever their standing, their dependence on the master was built into the financial system. Their wealth was derived from his. So the better he did, the better they did. And if he wanted to exchange his wealth and spend it on expensive clothes, lavish banquets, elaborate furnishings, ornate carriages, all the trappings of wealth, well, there was no public shame. On the contrary, it was good advertising because it showed potential new payday borrowers how capable the master was. Because along with status in society, such public displays of wealth purchased honor. A master who shared a little venture capital with his servants before he left for another business trip abroad was sharing his happiness with them. He was showing he was, a, he was a hard man when it came to wealth creation, enticing them to rake off some of the little bits of happiness for themselves while he was away. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. How we hear a parable has a lot to do with our vision of the kingdom. We know that Jesus told this story as a parable of the kingdom. But guys, let me ask you, how did we turn this master with a little m into our master of the universe, whose word says in Proverbs, the Lord hates cheating and dishonesty. Trust in your money and down you go. Better be poor and honest than rich and dishonest. Don't weary yourself out trying to get rich. Why waste your time? Riches can disappear as though they had the wings of a bird. When it comes to dining with a rich man, be on your guard. He is trying to bribe you and no good will come of it. So I think just the question I'd like to ask this morning is, 
Haven't there always been a lot of these little M masters who fancied themselves at God's job? No, it's hard to see this master as anything else than a first century banker sitting on a pile of gold talent so high he has to hire people to keep raking it in for him without troubling too much about the niceties. As long as he can generate a fast return, those servants are free to make it any way they like, just as long, of course, as they stay within the law. But the law in those days was generously amended so that people like the master could go on growing the economy for the good of all the other little masters. So can I ask us again, which of the three servants fits in with our vision for St. Saviour's? Are we really expected to believe that the first two servants are praiseworthy for making a wealthy man wealthier, for keeping an absentee landlord and a payday lender in business, for squeezing more and more profit for the master and taking a slice for themselves. These are the servants we should follow. When the third slave, the third servant, riddled with guilt, instead of using the gold aggressively, buries it where it can do no more harm. The third servant, who is the only one who tells the truth about the master, not behind his back, but to his face, who tells the truth to the master to his face, even when doing so leads to repressed guilt resulting in the loss of opportunity for meaningful existence. Even if it means being banished from his master's expensive happiness, he's the one, he's the one whose evil sins of omission condemn him to eschatological darkness. Of course the master threw that servant out, of course he did. He couldn't have somebody exposing the truth that he'd reaped where he did not sow, gathered where he did not scatter. This servant has all the hallmarks of a whistleblower. Get rid of him. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The next one, please. We'll get there. We will get there. Don't you love technology? Isn't it wonderful? Okay, I think we'll just leave the slides, actually. Not to worry if you, if you can't do them out. The slides, had they come up on the screen, would have showed you the crowds occupying St. Paul's. Do you remember the occupying movement at St. Paul's? Yeah. Do you remember it was a really motley collection of folk uh, who, probably some who were on benefits, um, the tents, the hygiene was pretty bad, 
each morning, the poor old hedge fund managers and the bankers, they had to wend their way through the crowds. The city analysts had to weave their way through the crowds to get to their offices to do a proper day's work. And then they had to repeat the old exercise in the evening to go home for their evening commute. Nobody was selling anything. There was no industry or enterprise going on. But their message was quite simple. Claire read it to us earlier. Woe to him who increases what is not his, and to him who loads himself with many pledges, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the people shall plunder you. Or, if you want it in modern language, two very simple demands. One, give us financial transparency. Two, support credit unions. The Daily Telegraph called it a parable of our time. But can you imagine Jesus walking through that crowd and saying, I've come for my profit. What? No profit? You ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received some interest. Get the Dean of St. Paul's out of bed. Call for the Bishop of London. Take away what little money these people have and give it to the wealthy landowners. For to all who have, more will be given, but to those with nothing, even what they have will be taken from them. Is that really the only message of the parable of the talents? If your home has something other than a dirt floor, you are in half the world's population. If your room has a roof, a door, windows, and more than one room, you are in the top 20% of the world's population. If you have refrigeration, you are in the top 5%. If you have a car, a video, a microwave, and a toilet with a, with a cubicle door, you are in the top 1%. Just after our Love Guildford weekend, I had the privilege, we were talking about it earlier, I had the privilege of leading a simple memorial service for the homeless community in Guildford. And we had about 60 members of that community turned out. And it reminded me of the story about a well-meaning citizen who tried to sort out a homeless man. After he'd given the homeless man a lot of advice about how to get back on his feet, sort out his addictions, apply for a job, make his finances, get them in finances into order, qualify for housing benefit, after he'd done all this, the homeless man looked at the person, the do-gooder, most invested in his re rehabilitation and said, why do you want to sort me out and fix me up only to feed me back into the same greed-filled society that messed me up in the first place? I'm not really sure that this is a sermon about corporate corruption, corruption and greed. I don't even think this is a sermon about our church's sins of omission that will condemn us to eschological darkness. Maybe this is just a sermon about rethinking our head knowledge, 
about using our resources and talents more aggressively, about listening again to God's hard heartbeat. Maybe this is a sermon about re-engaging with scripture, looking at, looking at it afresh from a different lens to the one we've always been used to. Maybe this is a sermon about breaking out of theological cement, exploring new ways to fulfill the kingdom of God in the light of an altogether different vision than we've ever had before. Maybe this is about a, a sermon about a vision that is calling us to pioneer fresh new ways of sharing the grace of God and about what we risk if we do. Amen. Thank you very much, Paul. Shall we just pray before we have uh, our final hymn? The verses we had read to us said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. I think those are all words that we would long to hear from our Heavenly Father. Lord God, we have celebrated your faithfulness in our worship. Our longing as we enter this new week is to be faithful to you, to be faithful with what you have entrusted to us. And may we know something of this week of what it means to share in your happiness. That's beyond our imagination. Our master, our Lord, our redeemer, our savior. Amen. Our closing hymn is Be Thou My Vision. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>